Welcome to the Undercurrent Podcast. I'm your host, Liana Lumawig, life coach, surfer, and ex-corporate girl living in Bali. I've been in unfulfilling jobs and relationships that used to drain my energy and confidence to the point where I was miserable. If you can relate, this podcast is for you. I'm here to tell you that you don't have to stay stuck and settle for anything less than what makes you happy. You can choose how to work, love, and live on your terms. And this podcast will show you how. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Undercurrent Podcast. I have here with me Dean Powell. He is a men's mentor and he helps men stand up unapologetically in their power He leads men's groups, he coaches one-on-one, and he does group coaching, teaches a lot about healing addiction, childhood trauma, and so many other topics. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah. So what other topics do you teach about? I talk about, I mean, pretty much everything life. So there's so much like communication, sexuality, boundaries, losing ourselves, um, yeah, losing ourselves in relationship, um, losing ourselves in jobs, losing ourselves in life. So pretty much anything to do with life. Nothing's off the table. Okay. When we, when we talk, yeah. Yeah. So this is just a wide array of topics that will help people in life and hmm. relationships and yeah. the relationship with themselves. First and foremost. Yeah. Right. And even things like, I mean, diet, exercise, mm-hmm. like, you know, body, physical. Mm-hmm. So physical, mental, spiritual, financial, vocation, yeah. social. Yeah, everything. Were you always a teacher of life? Look, I honestly wasn't. I was brought up religious, like, and very religious. So I rarely bought into the religion. What religion? It was a worldwide church of God, Mm -hmm. a Seventh-day Adventist, and then we broke out into worldwide church of God. And it was a very, um, like, church every week, you know, we weren't allowed to... Um, swear or hang around, you know, listen to devil's music or mm. um, or eat certain meats and lots of, lots of stuff that was, you know, and it felt very hypocritical for me. And I remember, but I really believed it, you know. So I remember as a kid I would cry myself to sleep night after night just thinking about like burning in the fires of hell for eternity, you know. Wow. It was traumatising for heavy for a yeah, child. Yeah, for a six-year-old child, yeah. Yeah. And I used to think, you know, look, they say we're all children of God but why would God want his children to suffer like that? It didn't, yeah. it didn't make any sense to right. me. Right. So, but I was still, I was so like invested and I bought into it so much. I was too scared to leave the church. Okay. Um. So even when my parents stopped going and my siblings stopped going, I kind of still went for a while. And then I just tested the waters. I think it was about 19 when I finally just didn't go a couple of times. And then I was like, oh, God knows. <laughs> you had that <laughs> no, guilt. Just those, I said I was sick. He knows. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and nothing happened, you know. Like, and then I stopped going a few times and I was expecting to Burn. explode into a burst of flames and, and nothing happened. And then so I think after that moment I realised I, in a way, I felt like I'd been brainwashed, you know, for a lot of my life mm-hmm. um, and told things were a certain way and, and started to realise they weren't like that, you know. Right. There's another side to life that I started to find out about and explore. And um, so I think I at that moment I shut myself down a bit and I went, no, I'm not going to let anyone tell me. Um, how things are again. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do any reading. I didn't do any personal development. I kind of just shut down um, and then and switched off. And then I didn't really grow very much as a as a human being, as a man. So it took me a lot of years actually to, um, you know, to start to open up and to start to do more personal development work and then discover, wow, actually being in the church was amazing as well because I got some amazing morals and values and, you know, they taught me how to be a good person and how to how to look after people and treat people the way I want to be treated. And mm-hmm. So there was definitely some really good values that come out of that. Okay. Yeah. So you grew up with a very, you know, strong religious roots. It got to the other extreme where you were like, don't tell me anything, mm-hmm. anyone. Yeah, yeah. And what led you to start putting more effort into personal growth? Did something happen? Many things happened. But I guess the precursor for me was I had a violent dad who was, you know, violent and angry. And I always, I spent my whole life saying, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never be like my dad, you know, like, and I swore, like it was my motto. My mission was to be nothing like my dad. And I thought I was nothing like him. Um, And when my son was like nine years of age, I had him by the throat up against the wall like wanting to punch him in the face. 
And I remember in that moment going, what the fuck, you know, like I've just turned into my dad. Wow. And I made my whole life a promise that I wouldn't be like that. And I was like, wow, there's stuff I'm not knowing about here. Like if this has led me here with my conscious mind, then I've got to find out what's going on. There's more more happening in me, within me, around me um, than I have any idea about. So Right. It's just yeah. this programming yeah. that you're not conscious of until these extreme moments. Yeah, yeah. And I was angry. I was angry because I was angry because I didn't mm-hmm. know why I was angry. Right. You know, I was just like I was full. So, right. Yeah, and that's how I kind of operated in a lot of my life. Okay. Mm. So what prompted you to start growing was seeing how there was this behavior that happened, like a reaction within you that was not controllable. When you're calm and you realize that's not how you want to live, that's the time where you decided this needs to change. I knew, like, I was just like, I've got to do something about this. And, mm-hmm. and I went into some anger management and started to do some courses, started to learn there was a lot more going on inside of me than I had any idea. And also because I was a jovial, I was a joker all the time, you know, I used mm-hmm. to crack jokes and always be the funny guy. Yeah. Um, and then not even realising that behind all of that, you know, um, was a whole lot of pain and sadness and anger and yeah. shame and guilt and right. um, that I was just suppressing Okay, and you weren't aware of that? No idea at all. Why is it that we end up so much like our parents a lot of the time when we swear we would never Mm. do that? Why is that something that happens? It's not funny. It's it's very, very common. Yeah, and this is what I work with on a daily basis. I think there's, I mean, two parts of it. One is like physiologically, you're half your mum and half right. your dad. Yeah. How can you not be like them? You know? Right. Um, also, the most you know formative years of our life are when we're in theta brainwave between zero and seven years of age. Mm-hmm. So we equate everything to love, and this is where we build our whole, you know, mm-hmm. our, our whole reality and our whole world. Then when we develop our intellect that eight years of age is where we start to identify with the I. And, you know, so all of our years have been programmed by them, you mm-hmm. know, and also by the church and by school and peers. Mm-hmm. And so this we were these sponges of information. And a lot of the information we pick up is, you know, like I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy of love or, you know, so what was missing for me in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, of course, I'm going to be like my mom. I'm going to be like my dad. They also taught us how to fight, how to not fight, you know, mm-hmm. how, how they interacted in their relationship was modelled to us. Mm-hmm. And quite often, you know, like they didn't get the opportunity to do their own work. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I work with families as well. And I say to parents, most parents parent from their own pain. Yeah. So they either try to give their kids everything that they never got. Right. Or they try to save their kids from going through everything they went through. Right. And a kid just goes, I want to live my own life. Right. <laughs> just let me live. I want to make my own mistakes. I want mm-hmm. to make my own choices. Yeah. And all of that effort comes from a place of love, right? Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't feel like it because it feels like manipulation, it feels like control, it feels like blackmail. Um, but, yeah, they just want honestly want the best. They want more for us than they usually had, mm-hmm. 99% of the time. Yeah, 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 I can see that. So you have children. I do. How many children do you have? I have four children and I have a grandson. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. yes, I remember you yeah. saying that. Congrats. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so we went from talking about the church to being in an intense moment with one of your children. Mm. So what was life like? Are we still in Australia? Yeah, I was in Australia when I had my kids. I I travelled. So when I left the church, I travelled overseas and I... Yeah, did a bit of an overseas experience and ended up back in Australia where my twin sister and her boyfriend were living. And, yeah, then I stayed in Australia for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Had children, met a beautiful Australian girl and had had three kids with her and then and I had an older daughter in New Zealand. So when I left New Zealand, Mm -hmm. um, I found out the girl that I was with or seen at the time uh, was pregnant Mm -hmm. and... It was actually the night that she told me, I rang her and said, can you come over, we need to talk. And I was going to tell her, I said, you know, like, she said, I've got something to tell you. And I said, okay, well, you go first, I've got something to tell you as well. And she said, I'm pregnant. And I was like. That's like a movie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? And she's like, what did you want to tell me? I said, I was going to tell you that, you know, we're not working and we're not in love and we're not meant to be together. And um, so, I mean, it really rocked me as a, I was 19, I think, so. I didn't want to like just disappear and leave or yep. um, I yeah, stayed around and I kind of went and visited friends and spoke to a lot of people, single mums, mm-hmm. um, people who stayed together just for the kids. And I observed that, you know, 
that wasn't the environment to bring a kid up in. Mm-hmm. Like I could see the, you know, they the kids weren't happy because mum and dad weren't happy, and there's a lot of tension in the in the household. Anyway, meanwhile, like she'd met another guy, and um, he wanted to take the child on as his own. Oh wow! And um, and marry her, and so they did that, and I just said that's fine when the when the child's old enough, if they want to contact me, they can. Wow! Yeah. And that happened when she was um, I was about fourteen. She started to contact, have contact with my family, with my parents mm-hmm. in New Zealand because I was overseas. And she invited me to her wedding when she was 21. So the first time I met her um, was at her wedding. Wow. And her birthday is on the same day as my other daughter, my, my daughter in um, Australia. Uh-huh. So they share the same birthday and they're like twins, eight years apart. So when I met Krista, it was like I fell in love instantly because it was like meeting just an older version of my other daughter. <laughs> um, and they were the spitting image and they, were, wow. they had the weirdest, quirkiest things. They're both gay. You know, they both do the weirdest little things that I've never seen anyone else do. So when I met Krista and she did this thing, um, like it was actually opening a can of Coke, you know, but she wouldn't open it fully. So Jasmine always drank her Coke. She'd just crack it and then suck uh-huh. the, the liquid out. Yeah? Right. And um, so I'd never seen anyone else do this. And when I saw Krista do this in New Zealand, I was like, what? No way. <laughs> so, like, there's a million things. Like, uh, these guys, like, they finish each other's sentences. Oh, they are so close. No. They're actually my daughter from Australia went to live with Krista. So she's in New Zealand now. Wow. Okay, um, so you're from New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, and lived in Australia for 20 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, I heard kind of an Australian accent, oh, yeah. so so I wasn't sure. What do you mean, mate? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, so you've got family mm. in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And you were traveling all around the world Yep. during this time? I was travelling up until, yeah, until I think about 20, 22 or 23 I ended mm-hmm. up back in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just I stayed in Australia for 20 years. So, well, What was the work that you were doing back then? I was, look, I was just doing whatever I could find, working in factories, mm-hmm. um, construction work, labouring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so nothing concrete or, or definitive for me. Um, and then after a while, like I left... We were together for like 18 years, me and the mother of my children. Wow. Um, so like long term, I ended up, I had a construction business then, like um, diggers, bobcats, working for Water Authority. Mm-hmm. And I knew it wasn't what I was meant to be doing, but I had no idea what I was meant to be doing, you know. Okay. And some people have said to me, oh, what about working with people? I'm like, I don't like people. I don't want to work with people, you know. And my perception, like people were hard and and I didn't, I mean, and it was obviously because I just didn't like myself, you know. Mm. Um, but I had no idea what I wanted to do other than knowing there was a little quiet voice. I'm here for more. I know mm-hmm. there's more to life. And I think so I started to feel really down after a while because I, you know, it was almost like this itch that I couldn't scratch. Okay. And even when I, you know, got to a point where we were, you know, I was in the eyes of society, I suppose, successful, you know, so I had a good business and mm-hmm. money coming in and mm-hmm. we had properties around Australia and I had toys and, but I never, ever felt successful and I never really felt happy. You know, yeah. I felt like I was out of place all the time. Right. And for me, I have a similar story, but my own version of reaching this, you know, this level of success that should make you happy, mm. should make you fulfilled, but not feeling happy and yeah. fulfilled. Yeah. Right? Society says, yeah. 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 It's like you get to the top of the mountain and you're like, well, where's my reward or where is it? Like yeah. I can't find it. Right. That's a really good analogy. And it's actually not about the top of the mountain. It's not about the view. It's about for me going down and helping people up the mountain. Mm-hmm. I okay. think that's the reward for me. So it's that journey, yeah. How mm. did you get from you know, following the model or the template to beginning to do the work that you do now and starting to help people in the way that you do now? There was a lot that kind of happened in between. Like, um, so yeah, I was, sure. I ended up becoming a, like a junkie, like a addicted to drugs and addicted to alcohol. And um, it was mostly because I was looking for something outside of myself. Like I wasn't happy with who I am. Yeah. Um, and it was when I first actually, just before I met the mother of my kids, um, I started, you know, dabbling in um, methamphetamines mm-hmm. and, you know, like, and, and we'd just take it to party. And, yeah. And it was amazing. So suddenly I was like, you know, 10 foot high and bulletproof. I was the life of the party, mm-hmm. super funny, thought it was amazing. You know, mm-hmm. I had a great time partying with friends. 
Um, and then I started to kind of deal, you know, like because people wanted it and then obviously I started to feel important because uh, I had something that people needed. So right. it was like this whole, I mean, fake confidence in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the more this gave me confidence, the same with the alcohol, you know, the more it gave me confidence and, um, you know, and boosted me up, the less I felt that inside. So it was like this trade-off, you know, uh, where I was okay. selling my soul. Right. And so every time I needed to have some confidence, what did I need? What did I do? Right. Of course, I needed to drink and take drugs. And yeah. so it got to a point where, you know, I couldn't even go out anymore without having this in my system. Mm-hmm. And somebody introduced me to the needle, which is something I said I would never, ever do. Mm-hmm. Like I never I hated needles, hated injections. I thought I'd never do that. Met a girl who was into it and eventually we tried it. And and then I just like it's they say you get by on the feel of the steel, you know, so mm-hmm. getting used to the needle mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and it was like then I started to become really dependent and mm-hmm. I started to use all my own stuff and what I was dealing, that I was meant to be selling, I wasn't selling, I was mm-hmm. using and then I'd owe these guys like bikers, you know, money and just became this whole really seedy, dark, scary life, you right. know, lifestyle. That I was like my partner at the time had no idea what I was doing. Really? Because when I met the mother of my children, I was already using. She knew I, you know, I used a little bit and sold a little bit, but she didn't know what and how much and that I was shooting up. And so I just lied, you know, lied and lied and lied and lied to her. And, um, yeah, and then it got to a point where I just couldn't hide. Like I was getting sick. I was, you know, we kept losing money. Of course I was stealing money from us and doing whatever I could just to get this into my, into my veins. Um, a very, very selfish, like very selfish life, you know, mm-hmm. a selfish, I don't know about disease, but it's definitely a, you know, choice that I made. Um, and yeah, I, I made life very, very hard for us and for her, especially, you know, yeah. um, we were together a lot of years. This happened, this was over about five years. Um, and yeah, I made life very hard for her and then got to a point where my friend, her cousin actually, Yanka Richter said, Dean, if you don't tell Bev, I'm going to tell her. Mm. And I was like, no, no. Cause he was living with us at the time. He said, no, he said, no, man, you got to tell her or I'm telling her tonight. And I was like, no, 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 fuck off. Don't fucking, no way. Don't be a dog. You can't do that. You know, like, and I started panicking, you know, like this caged right. animal. And, yeah. um, and he said, I'm telling you, man, you've got to tell her tonight or I'm going to tell her. And then I was like, whoa. So for the first time, I think, ever maybe in my life where I had to come clean, you know, I actually sat her down and I watched, you know, as I told this woman, I still remember seeing her soul break, you know, in her beautiful blue eyes. I remember that feeling like I just broke this person, you know, I've just broken this mother of of my children and a woman that I loved, you know, that I loved dearly. And it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the last time that I did that actually. But it was a horrible thing. It was a relief in a way because I finally got it out and told her. And then she said, okay, get out, you know. Like, and we had a couple of young kids at the stage. She said, get out. Sorry, we had one. This was when my son was born. Um, and then I left the house and I wandered, like, for all night. Like, it was, yeah, dark. I wandered and cried and bawled my eyes out. I thought, this is it. My life's over. I've lost my partner. I lost my kid. Yeah, and ironically, I sat on these steps and then when the light came up, I was actually sitting on the steps of a church that I had oh. no idea about. How wow. weird is that? Yeah? yeah. And I remember just looking up and the light came up and then I'm like, what, I'm at a church. And then this car pulls up and the minister of the church got out and he saw, saw me and he said, are you okay, mate? And I said, no. Nah. And I just started crying and he said, come in and have a cup of tea. You know? So I went inside, had a cup of tea. Um, he's like, tell me what's going on. So I just said, oh, I've just messed my life up and... He was a really sweet guy and I he was you know, I was telling him about now I owed bikers some money and these guys are heavy guys and he said, You're just gonna have to come clean and tell everybody and I was like, dude, you don't understand. Right. <laughs> like they'll kill me. That's not about, you know, just coming clean and then going, Oh. Um, he said, You're gonna have to do something in your life then, you know, like honesty. It's gonna have to be something that you have to face. Um and he was right. He ended up dropping me home. Um Bev wasn't there when I got home. Um, so I lay down, I was wiped and I just crashed. And then Bev woke me up, she'd come home and we sat and talked and she said, look, I love you, you know, you're going to have to get help, um, but we'll get through this. And so wow. she forgave me, you know. That's big. Um, it was huge, you know, like what a, yeah, what an angel, you know. Mm-hmm. And then so we went, I tried to get help, I went to a rehab centre and I stopped using for maybe three months um, and then got a job and I started to kind of get my life back on track and then... 
um, essentially, I, and everyone I knew had it, you know. So I ran into somebody who had it again and they were like, oh, come on, have this, you know, like you've been really good. And so oh. the whole reward, yeah, okay, why not? Yeah. And then I just hit it again really hard. And, yeah. And I just, I mean, I started again where I left off, you know. I didn't go down, you know, didn't take off slowly again. It was just, just straight in there. full bore. Again, stealing, you know, like um, ripping money off her as well, off my family, mm-hmm. you know, doing whatever I could to get it. And then... My brother-in-law was in New Zealand at the time and he said, Dean, come to New Zealand. Like, you know, you can't get it here. Just get away from it. And so, yeah, I convinced Bev to come to New Zealand and we left, went went over there. But then there's you a thing. moved? Yeah, we moved. So we moved. Okay. I went and got a job in New Zealand and we went to New Zealand and, and Bev didn't like it, you know. Mm. It wasn't her place, you know. She loved her family. She was close with her family. She was away from them. I mean, I loved it because I was not using you know, for a first time in a long time, I had a job and I was starting to kind of like who I am. But I just switched the drugs for the alcohol. Mm, so got it. They call yeah. it transference. I had no idea about that. But I just started. And then I colluded Bev into it. So I'd get her drinking as well. So then at one stage, we were both like alcoholics and we had had another baby by that stage. And um, yeah, and then she just decided one day, Dean, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, we're parents. We're going to be more responsible and um, and it took me a little while longer, but then, yeah, we both stopped. And um, then we came back to Australia again. I joined the gym. And then so I started to swap my addictions, like for better quality addictions. I mm-hmm. realized, oh, look, I'm a, I've got an Exercise. addictive personality, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was still a junkie. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was going to the gym seven days a week. You know, I had really? the most ripped body of my life. and um, But I never, ever felt right. I still felt broken mm-hmm. inside, you know. And if I didn't go to the gym seven days, like, I'd... I was, you know, feeling bad about myself, but also that was affecting my relationship because mm-hmm. it was still a selfish thing. It was all about me, you know. Right. Um, and then I was doing personal development seminars and, and it wasn't until I did this one actually that Bev went and did before me. She came back from this weekend and she was completely different. Like wow. there was something about her. I was like her whole energy, yeah. everything had shifted. And I was like, wow, you know, like she was suddenly calm like grounded open loving mm-hmm. um and she said this workshop was incredible she said you got to come we're having a graduation um on wednesday night come along and just see me graduate and i was like okay but i'm not doing it i'm not into that fucking you know touchy feely cry stuff that's not for me uh, but i remember when i walked into this place I remember the people were so happy and it was like the weirdest, like they were genuinely happy. And, <laughs> and I, like, this is not real life. <laughs> seriously, it was like that. This is not real. This isn't how I've experienced any of my life before. Yeah. They were hugging each other. They were, there was like connection. Um, yeah, and it was like, yeah, like I say, genuinely, genuinely happy. And I was like, this is really weird. And then the guy started talking. He was giving a lecture and he started talking about God and I was like, oh, here we go, I'm out. But then you're saying God as in grand organizing design. So he said, like, this thing we live in is grand and it's always organizing itself. And it's also, you know, it's amazing. It's an incredible design. And I was like, you know what, I can I can live with that. You know, that doesn't feel so religious. Um, and the more he spoke, the more it made sense. Like quantum physics, quantum mechanics, he explained things in a way I've never heard before. And... I was the first one to go up and sign up for the next workshop. Wow. Afterwards, I was straight up there, signed up. And then, of course, what happens often is when we commit to something, a whole lot of stuff comes up for us, yeah? So um, in the week before the workshop, I realized that, you know what, I don't want any more lies in my life. I'm at that point where I've had enough, and there were still things that I hadn't told Bev you know, I hadn't told her fully about, you know, I'd worked for a place and stolen money and, you know, like um, that I had to go to court for. I cheated on her in the very beginning of our relationship that, you know, she never would have found out, but I knew, like it was eating me away always. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always wondered, would I tell her on my deathbed? No, probably not. You know, like mm-hmm. I was just so scared of the truth and, and you know, so irresponsible and not wanting to take responsibility for my actions. So... Yeah, the night before I went and did this workshop, I actually like sat down on the bed and told her everything. And I just said, look, you know, um, we always said if that, you know, that'll be the end of us. If we either of us had affairs, you know, we'd be gone. That's big for you too. It was huge, you know, yeah. like, but again, it was like a relief. Like I realized in that moment, my God, you know, they say the truth shall set you free. And it definitely, definitely set me free, like in the sense that, oh my God, okay. Nothing, as much as all of this hurts and, and again I watched her heart break you know I broke yeah. this woman again and I remember just thinking you know no more I, I don't want any more lies in my life 
Right. Um, I've written a book actually. It's called. It's about my journey. It's called Shoot Up. But the original title was going to be Life of Lies, mm-hmm. because my life was such a lie that I'd forgotten what was true, what was yeah. real anymore. You know. Yeah. And what were lies? So. Yeah, so I ended up just telling her everything. She was like, okay, just go and do this workshop. And um, I thought that was it, you know, it would be over. And I had a massive workshop. It was like the biggest realisations. It was like somebody opened my eyes to life for the very first time or like walking into a dark room, someone switched a light on and then off again and I got to see everything. And everything like, in, inside? Inside, yeah, inside. And externally as well in my mm-hmm. life. Like, and I, remember, mm-hmm. I, I was yeah. laughing and crying simultaneously when I got the, the quantum shift process and I was laughing because it was so silly it was so stupid and so small Um, and then I was crying because I'd made my whole life about this one story you know about not being loved or not being lovable and that I'm a bad bad person that I created bad situations or scenarios in my life where people are always going to find out I'm a bad guy Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah it was amazing I felt so different after that and then Bev forgave me again said, okay, look, we'll work through this. And, um, I mean, bless her, but it was also very, was something she couldn't let go of. And I, I mean, God, I broke her trust how many times, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it just it was unrepairable, I think, you know. Like yeah. she couldn't, it got to a point, like she didn't like me. I wasn't allowed any other, any female friends in my life and um, couldn't talk to women, which I totally understand because yeah. I created that, you know. But then I also then created this where I was trying to make up for the rest of my life, you know, with mm-hmm. her and, and it just wasn't. Yeah. healthy, it wasn't good for us, it wasn't good for the kids. So actually the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life was then to leave her. Like it was my choice. It was like we were at her sister's wedding and I remember looking over at Bev and she was crying and I knew she wasn't crying because she was happy for her sister. I knew she was crying because I wouldn't give her that. Because you knew. Because I knew. I just didn't know how to commit, you know, like I couldn't commit fully and... I didn't want to get married. She wanted to get married. And I used this whole, oh, I don't need to get married excuse, you know. Right. But the truth is I just didn't know how to be in something and fully commit to anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had a fight on the way there outside the church. We had a big fight and and I just said to her on the way home, we can't do this anymore. This isn't fair. It's not fair on you. It's not fair on me. It's not fair on the kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we decided that I'd leave. And I remember sitting the kids down on the couch and, I remember my daughter bawling her eyes out. It was really hard. And like I say, the hardest thing I think I've ever had to do in my life. Yeah. Um, As well, because how dare I leave her after she'd forgiven me, you know. I broke her heart how many times and then she forgave me. How dare I leave her? But I I knew that I had to. Like my heart was a thousand percent always, you know you've got to do this. My head was always like, oh, no, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't break up a family and how dare you and... But I knew. I knew I wasn't happy. I knew she wasn't happy. So You felt it. I totally felt it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was like, and then the truth, you know, like for me then the truth started to become really important. Mm-hmm. Well, it was really important. And I started to realise, my God, my life works so much easier when I'm honest, you know. Mm. Um, and I was a massive people pleaser. I was scared of confrontation. So it was really hard for me to mm-hmm. just speak the truth, you know, to yeah. speak my truth and, mm-hmm. and whatever's going on. But I realised as well that I can do it with compassion. I can do it with, you know, gentleness. I can mm-hmm. do it with kindness. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be hard and, and nasty, you know. Yeah, hardest thing in my life ever. That sounds very, very hard mm-hmm. after this whole journey that you had been on as a family, as a couple. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to ask about the honesty and the addiction. Is that correlated, right? Is the reason why you or some other people start using um, like drugs or alcohol or other ways to cope is because they can't be honest with themselves? Dr. Gabor Mate says, you know, not everyone who experiences trauma becomes an addict, Mm -hmm. but every addict has trauma. Okay. So it's definitely like it's mostly, I think, because look, we're not taught how to express ourselves. We're not taught how to communicate. We're not taught, you know, how to deal with trauma. We're not taught, you know, so people who have experienced trauma in their lives, and I'm not, this is in no way an excuse, you know, like I chose what I chose. I did what I did. Um, It was my choice to go down that road. But I think, you know, like I had no idea how to be honest. I had no idea how to, you know, how to express my feelings, how to how to be emotional. I had no idea, you know, how to let love into my life. I didn't know how to um, 
how to love in a way, you know, where I wasn't just needing something from somebody. So in my perception, I'd grown up missing everything. And so every relationship I got into, I was expecting them to give it to me, you know. Mm -hmm. So give me love, give me attention, give me safe, give me all the things that I never got as a kid, you Mm -hmm. know. So, um, and because I couldn't, find it in relationships of clearly they couldn't give it to me either i started to look for it in alcohol and mm-hmm. of course alcohol made me feel better so i thought it was giving me that stuff and the right. same with the drugs you and train yourself right? yeah and then that started to take over and that got more and more had more and more control and yeah. i had less and less control you know so that became the power mm-hmm. what are the first steps to turning the ship around i think the first thing is like stopping and actually admitting, okay, I've got a problem here. Yeah. Like um, this is bigger than me. I can't sort this out, although I've been telling myself the whole time I would. I mean, even when I was a full-blown junkie, I still was, you know, lying to myself. So easy to lie to ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and justify what I'm doing. I'm fine. I'm not as bad as everyone thinks. No, I can stop anytime. And I couldn't, you know, like I was a full-blown junkie. So I think the first thing is to go, okay, I've got a problem and I need help here. Yeah. Obviously, I can't fucking sort this out or I would have by now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, and then I think the best thing in, t- in all the years I've worked with people, I've worked in addiction centres and, mm-hmm. you know, I think the best thing is when people actually ask for help, there's something else that happens there where we kind of hand over to a higher power, you know, whether it's I don't know, whether it's God, universe, spirit, or even just somebody else who has walked that path before, who knows how to how to get out of that. You know, like I said, coming down that mountain and then helping people back up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something really magical in that, and also just in hearing myself say those words. Um, like I run men's circles now, yeah, and there's two magics that happen in men's circle. One is like just a guy speaking what's really going on for him, like in an honest and vulnerable way. There's magic just like having other guys witness that, you yeah. know, without needing to be fixed, without getting advice, without, you know, without anything needing to be changed, just speaking what's going on. Yeah. Um, and the other magic is when then these guys give resonance and they talk about similar things that they've been through or how they can relate to the situation. Suddenly it's like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one going mm-hmm. through this. So suddenly they, they don't feel like they're alone anymore. Yeah, that is powerful, right? When you're going through life feeling alone in the pain and the suffering that you've Mm. got, but sharing a space with other people who completely understand you, who can relate, and you can see other people witnessing you, but also witness other people going through something similar as your own. It doesn't feel as heavy because other people are helping you carry it. And it's crazy that we think we're the only ones going through it, like so many times. Yeah. Yeah. I love that the work that you're doing and how you help men, you know, over the last several years or the last, like the recent years, Mm. masculinity has become a huge topic. Mm. um, And the idea of masculinity is changing. Finally, yeah. Finally. From this you know, maybe misogynistic or ultra aggressive, Mm. machissimo type Mm. um, energy to something different, Mm. something more softer or self-aware, but strong in a different Mm. way. Will you share more about that? Yeah, I love that. Like, um, I think there's been a massive change. There is a massive change happening around the world. And and it's more around like we were taught it's not okay to cry. It's not okay to be emotional. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not okay to show emotion. Um, And, you know, we're, I mean, bullied at school, you know, if you show any emotion, if you're soft, if, if, if you're sensitive. I was a really sensitive kid. I got picked on a lot and bullied a lot. And my dad also hated it, you know, so he tried to toughen me up in all the wrong ways. Um, and I was extremely sensitive. So um, they tried to knock that out of me. And when I realised, you know, like then I tried to knock that out of me. I tried to pretend I wasn't, you know, like and then I became a, you know, started to get involved with bikies and trying to be a bikie and I always knew I wasn't, you know. I knew I wasn't a tough guy. Um, And so I kind of avoided the masculine side my whole life you know I was scared my dad wasn't a very good role model Uh, my perception of men which I've heard from many many other guys over the years is men are going to hurt me they're going to steal my woman or take my money you Mm. know so what a sad perception of men yeah but that's kind of how we're taught you know we're going to be competitive and we've got to you know we've got to fight and and we're not allowed to show emotion so yeah so there's a massive change happening now where people are realizing my god that doesn't help anybody you know like Mm -hmm. um 
yeah, like actually opening up is what people want. You know, they want to know what's going on and how we feel and, and that we do feel, you know, like mm-hmm. so just to acknowledge. I mean, so many guys I work with don't even know how to acknowledge a feeling yeah. because they have had no opportunity to know what a feeling is. So sometimes I have actually have to give them a, a chart with different the you feelings, know, emo- yeah, different <laughs> emojis, and they can go, um, what that? Right. And I remember doing the same thing, like, we're not because I had no idea, I hadn't cried since I was a little kid, you know. Yeah, um, and then they were asking how I feel, and I go, good, you know, good, right. happy, good, what, you know, like I didn't Fine. know any other feeling, yeah, or angry, <laughs> that was all I knew. And then they showed me this chart, and I was like, oh my god, I think I feel like this, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like this. And then I started to realize that there's a whole lot more going on inside of me than, mm-hmm. than I had any idea about. and. Um, so, yeah, like my goal with men is to actually allow a safe space for them to just talk about whatever's going on. Um, and for me, you know, like the masculine, I've asked, I did a recent video where I asked all these different men, you know, what's the hardest thing about being a man or being a male, you know, in this world? And I asked women as well. Um, and it was really interesting to get the different answers. But basically, um, I mean, for me, the hardest thing about being a man is trying to live up to all of the bullshit expectations that being a man is meant to be mm-hmm. because everyone has a different interpretation. Right. And so I spent my whole life trying to live a different different interpretation of what being a man is. Mm-hmm. And for some people it was like, you're going to be tough, you're going to be strong, you're going to be aggressive. That didn't work because not everyone liked that or they liked it sometimes but not other times, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, not letting anybody in and being closed isn't what they want, you know. So I started to realise, my God, you know, I am a man just because I'm a man. Right. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Like yeah. it, it doesn't have to be because I'm tough or – and I also – I realised that I was avoiding my warrior side, you know, my masculine side because I, you know, I became a new age guy, sensitive new age guy and, you know, tried to give women what they wanted and be, you know, like us. But I became like a wet sponge, you know. Mm. Um, and that's not what they wanted either, you know. Mm. Like they wanted someone who was just real and honest and um, knows how to be in my power mm-hmm. but also like – in a, in a nice, kind, compassionate, sensitive way. Not always, but, you know, I can be a sensitive warrior, you know. Yeah. That was a big realisation for me. And then also when I do tap into this, like I did some warrior training recently, um, probably one of the best workshops I've ever done because I thought I never had that part of me, you know. Like, And I remember even there was a group of guys who were all yelling and screaming and getting aggressive and I was just like... I can't even do that, you know, like I opened my mouth and nothing would come out and I was just frozen with fear and um, and I ended up crying and just saying, like, I don't feel like I'm like I'm like this, you know, I'm not like you guys. And and they just came and held me and as a group of guys, you know, and then I remember sobbing and sobbing and and um, and just while well, these guys held me and just Beautiful. accepted me for being a fucking sensitive guy, you know. Yeah. And then in that I was able to find my voice and then I started to fucking tap into this rage that's mm. been inside, you know, this anger about so many things, anger about the world, anger about the conditioning, anger, angry about, you know, like the way masculinity has been portrayed and is portrayed and angry about these, you know, the select few asshole men who have fucking, you know, who have ruined it for the rest yeah. of the men on the planet, you know? Yeah. Because we're not that. I'm not these guys, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then I found this voice that was like, oh, scared myself, you know, like I had no idea that was in there. Wow. So knowing I can tap into both, you know, the sensitive and the, and the worry at any time is important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, giving yourself permission to mm. be whatever you feel in the moment, Yeah. right? You know you are not just one static. Yeah. Emotion or energy, yeah. right? You can, I'm man. <laughs> right? <laughs> Almost, yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. love the idea of allowing yourself to do that, and that gives you strength, right? When people can love you and accept you for wherever you're at, mm. if you're different, if you are angry or full of rage, or if you are sensitive and sobbing, right? Like that mm. is all okay. Yeah. It makes me a human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I do with it is important. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, if I go around, you know, being aggressive with people and mistreating people, then that's also not okay. Yeah. But as long as I know what to do with it, and, and this is what I teach guys, you know, is like whatever it is and however it is, is absolutely perfect. And it's important just to observe it. But then what do I do with that is, is the next most important thing. Yeah. So I can't be taking that out on other people. Yeah. Sounds like you've been on quite a journey Hmm. and had an evolution in your life. And I mean, yeah, it's been so nice to hear like the fullness of your story. 
and seeing how you've changed your mind about things, seeing mm-hmm. how you've evolved as a person. Um, recently, I saw on Instagram mm-hmm. that you got engaged. Uh-huh. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and that's mm. changing your mind big time. Huge. Yeah, it was something that I said I would never do. Okay. Yeah, that's what you said yeah. because you were with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your partner for 18 years and you were not in that place to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you listening, Dean's fiance is Susanna, who I also recently oh, just, yeah, interviewed yeah. on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that I have you both now yeah. here as guests. And I want to ask... How did you change your mind about such a big thing? I think, like I said before, you know, I just didn't know how to commit. So I didn't know how to commit to me. So, of course, Mm. I couldn't commit to anyone else. But to be honest, you know, like I've, every relationship I've ever been in, I've had one foot out and one foot in, Mm -hmm. you know. So I would always keep the door open in some way and I'd have leaky energy, you know, sexual energy, flirting or, um, and for the first time in my life, I'm fully in this, you know, like as soon as we met, like in lives align in so many ways, like she runs women's circles and, you know, now we do mixed circles together. And it was like just such a perfect, you know, symbiosis. And yeah. I feel like she's this perfect extension of me, you know, like of me in my life and it works so easily. Yeah, it's so simple that I, I mean, I was in so much as well that it also brought up all of my insecurities, mm-hmm. you know, so it's so much come up when we met that I had to work through. Um, and it was amazing because, like, I had to go through the stuff. I ended up with so much rejection. We nearly broke up a couple of times. Um, and then we worked through these triggers. So for the first time in my life and also Susanna's, we both leaned in. Mm-hmm. Like when every fibre of our being was running, wanted to run the other way yeah. and disappear and shut down. And we leaned in and we talk and we share. And um, and it's been amazing, you know. Like I – and I, for the first time ever, like I – she can have my phone, my computer. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, in the beginning, we'd be watching movies, you know, on the laptop and the notifications would come up and I'd go, oh, <laughs> go, oh no, I don't have to worry. Like, it's, yeah. it's such a freeing, amazing yeah. feeling. I don't <laughs> have to worry. Nothing can hurt me because I'm a thousand percent honest. You know, oh, it feels so amazing. That's beautiful. So I shared and actually in men's group last night, I shared with the guys, you know, like I'm most proud of being able to do this, like being able to propose to Susanna. I'm most proud of the man that I've had to become to be able to do this, to get yeah. to a point to do this with yeah. her, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it was like a big shift. And I honestly, I don't want the wedding. I don't want the church or the, you know, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, the way weddings or marriage has been portrayed is mm-hmm. like um, also very like old school and very, <laughs> it is very commercial. Like I don't want that, but I want to do a, like a sacred union ceremony, yeah. you know, where we celebrate our love and share that with our friends. And, That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very lucky she said yes, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you guys are both lucky to have found each other yeah, and to have so... Seriously, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. much alignment and share your lives in a way that just is so intimate. Yeah. And you open up spaces for people to join in yeah. on the love that you have for each other and for people. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very blessed. Like I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, you know, like or especially after because what I've been through and what I've done and, you know, the amount of people that I've hurt and, um, you know, including my kids, you know, like and and, um, and the mother of my kids. And I feel like, I mean, I've had a very, very full life, mm-hmm. you know, like I mean, and I'm glad, you know, like I'm glad I didn't just not ever do drugs or, you know, I'm glad mm-hmm. I did all of this because it's really shown me, you know, like, what I love and, you know, what's important mm-hmm. and what matters and also showed me how to help people who are there without judgment, you know. Like, I mean, I can't judge anybody after everything I've done in my life. How dare I, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, so I, my goal is anybody, you know, anybody deserves another chance and anybody deserves to be helped if they want help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that. Seeing the adversity that you experienced in your life, the really hard times allowed you to connect deeper with people. Mm. Thank God, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and also There's a my gift there. Yeah, and my sensitivity, the thing that yeah. I try to avoid my whole life. You know, it's the gift that I have when I'm working with clients now. Right. You know, I get to actually drop in and be sensitive and, you know, go there with them, you know. It's funny how that yeah. works, right? Something that you were pushing yeah. away, something you felt that that was a weakness within you is actually your biggest strength. How many One times up. in life, yeah? Yeah. 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 So for people who are in this place of not feeling comfortable in their own skin or not feeling like they're in alignment um, or feeling like they've, there are parts of themselves that they're not 
owning? Mm. Like what's a piece of advice that you have for them? My God, I think a friend said to me a little while ago, Dean, if you could see you through our eyes the way you see you, we see you, things would be very different. And I started to to wonder then, well, how do they see me, you know? Because my perception was people always saw me as a bad guy. And mm. so when I started to challenge that, what makes me a bad guy, you know? Yeah. Like, what have I, okay, I've done some horrible things. That doesn't make me a bad guy. Mm. Like, my intention has never been to just directly go out and hurt people. My intention's usually because I, you know, like I'm either loving or looking for love or, um, and I've, I've, my intentions are very good for people I meet and, and work with. So when I start to challenge that, what makes me a bad guy? And then start to find the things that I love about myself. And this is what I do with clients, you know, your job is to, Find the things that you love about yourself and tell yourself those things every day because we all know, we know the other stuff, the stuff that negates us all the time, you know, where we negate ourselves and beat ourselves up and give ourselves a hard time. That doesn't help. It ends like we feel down, depressed, ostracized, alone, like we don't fucking belong, we don't mm-hmm. fit into society um, and that doesn't help anybody. You no. know? But the opposite can happen. If I let my little kid know, God, you've got the biggest heart out of anybody I know. You fuck up and you make mistakes, that's okay. I still will never turn my back on you. Mm-hmm. You know, then this kid feels like, oh my God, I've, someone's got my back. Yeah. And who else could, you know, is better to have my back than me? You mm-hmm. know, so then if I've got my back and I can treat myself like that, well, then I can treat people around me like that. And then the people I come into contact with like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, my whole life I was trying to give from an empty well. You know, I was trying to give people love that I thought they wanted or that mm-hmm. I never got. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my bucket was continually emptying mm-hmm. out, you know. Whereas instead of standing up and like and then letting my bucket fill up with authentic love, that overflows onto people and they feel like it's a genuine love, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It feels very different. Yeah. So giving yourself that love, right? We have this negative self-talk that is constant a mm. lot of the time. And that is years and years and years of that. But like yeah. you said, if when you start giving yourself loving messages, right? And programming yourself to do that. Yeah. Like that makes a huge difference. It can go the other way as yeah. well very quickly, yeah? Yeah. I mean, and when you think about it, all of that, you know, the voice that's always negating is bullshit anyway. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, if you're listening to that voice, who is that voice? Right. Because it's not you. You're the one listening, yeah? Mm-hmm. So who's the voice? And it's years of other people's yeah. ideas and opinions in society and church and religion and peers mm-hmm. and, and it's it's bullshit, you know. Yeah. Like in the amount of times I catch that voice out, you know, like where I'll be given a presentation and then I look at somebody in the front row and they're like, oh, my God, this person hates it. You know, look at their face. <laughs> yes, they, go, like, oh, they just are not into this at all. And so this voice is going, I'm like, okay, don't cancel, delete, cancel, yeah, delete, don't need yeah. this, keep going with the talk. And then afterwards... Like that person will come up and go, that was amazing, thank you so much. And I'm like, what, did you like that? And they're like, I loved it. I'm like, could you let your face know next time? But, you know, it's that voice is so, it's wrong so many times. Yeah, Yeah. it's not what you perceive, Mm. right? It could be a million different other things. Yeah, It's just that one that you lock into and then you start putting energy towards, right? And we hear like 20 great things. And you'll hear one not so mm-hmm. good thing. It doesn't even have to be negative, but it's not as good as the 20 great things. Yep. What do we focus on? Like yep. how crazy is that? Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's the same. So the more I affirm myself, and and I don't mean this in an arrogant, cocky way, um, but if I can't do that, who's going to? Yep. And the people that I love being around are people who love themselves, you know, mm-hmm. people who know, you know, that they are the shit, you know, that they are an amazing human being mm-hmm. and what they bring to the table is fucking epic. And then I'm lucky to be in their lives, you know, yeah. like I love that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, like my, with Susanna, I tell her every day, you know, like I'm so, like I, I see her as a queen. And because I see her as my queen, I treat her like my queen. Mm -hmm. And I would rather have that than how I have been in every other relationship where I point out the negatives and I start to undermine them. And that's the version that I get, you know. So why would I do that? I would rather have the queen and and see the things Mm -hmm. that she doesn't see and remind her about the things that she doesn't see every every day, every moment I can. How beautiful. Yeah. How beautiful that it could be this like positive feedback loop that you share together. Why not? And if we can't do it with each other, who can? Right. Yeah? That's the best place to start, yeah. 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 Beautiful. <laughs> so people are listening to this and can probably relate or are inspired by the work that you do. 
Um, do you work with people in person, online? Like, how do you work with people? I do both. I work with people online. I do online sessions with people like all, all over the world and also okay. in person. Yeah. Um, and I also have like online programs. I have an online addiction program. It's a 16-week program for people who are struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. Then I have a 12-week online program for people who are looking after people with addiction. Yeah. Because generally what they do out of love mm. tends to push the person further into the addiction. Wow, so yeah. So it's how best to manage them and then how to, once they manage themselves, then how to manage the person with the addiction. That's great. Yeah. It's like a full support system. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, also they're the people who are looking for the most help. Like, I mean, usually addicts, aren't ready to stop or, you know, they're not often looking looking for help. Mm -hmm. um, people looking after people with addictions are the ones that are most affected, you know. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Yeah, and then I have, um, yeah, online I do coaching, men's coaching um, predominantly, mm -hmm. but I, I love working with anybody. Like I said, I love, you know, helping human beings, you know. Wonderful. Yeah. And men's groups, we do free men's groups um, online and in person as well. So That's great. Yeah, thank you. How do people reach you if they want to inquire or connect or join a men's group? Well, if you actually, well, my website, so www.lifetalk.com.au and otherwise they can find me on YouTube. I've got lots of different YouTube videos on Facebook. Yeah, all the usual Instagram. Yeah, wonderful. Sounds good. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we complete? The only thing I would say is like it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Every human being is worthy of love. Mm -hmm. Like you are not your behavior. You're not what you've done. You're not what you think you are. And You know, like you are a human being. Every human being deserves love and deserves a second chance. Yeah. Ah, beautiful message. I love mm -hmm. that. Right. We can get so caught up and stuck on the things that we've done mm -hmm. and not forgive ourselves for certain things yeah. and just stay stuck. Yeah. So I love that message of no matter what, yeah. you are worthy of love. Yeah, every human being. Every human being. Yeah, and the forgiveness thing, like it's so, like we, let alone forgiving ourselves and then forgiving other people as yeah. well, that's a big one. Like we think by not forgiving them that we're hurting them, but we're only hurting ourselves, mm -hmm. you know. It's like if I can't let myself off the hook, then I can't let anyone else off the hook. And, yeah. and it doesn't help anybody. Like carrying yeah. shame and guilt and beating myself up for the rest of the life doesn't serve them. Yeah. It doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve anybody. So, mm. yeah, always a second chance. Yeah, that's great. Mm. That's a great message to end on. Thank you so much for sharing today. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate our conversation and you being here. Mm, me too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Undercurrent Podcast. If we're not yet connected on Instagram, give me a follow at Liana Lumawig and at The Undercurrent Podcast. For more tips on how to design your life on your terms, or if you'd like to reach out, visit lianalumawig.com or you can always DM me on Instagram at The Undercurrent Podcast. Take care, my friends, and see you next week. Mm -hmm.